The first reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, which you'll find on page 992. Uh, Matthew 23, starting at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if someone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 4, and you'll find it on page 1170. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, 
Become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is, born, is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my, tu my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully we'll only need the uh, one glass of water this morning. We'll see if it's a two-glass sermon. Lord God, please speak your words through me to your people. May we all hear what you have to say, not what I have prepared. Please speak into our hearts and let us know the, the peace of your presence. Amen. So let me start by telling you the story of a child. It's a young girl lying in bed at night. She's grown up in a Christian household. She has a test tomorrow, and she's concerned. So she reaches out to the Lord and says, please God, give me peace so that I can do my best tomorrow. So she lies there for a bit longer, and then she thinks, I didn't get on my knees. So she gets out of bed, kneels down, and says and repeats her prayer, please give me peace so that I can do my best tomorrow. She gets out, she gets up, gets back into bed, and then as she's lying there, she thinks, but I didn't close my eyes or clasp my hands. So she gets out of bed, gets back down on her knees, closes her eyes, clasps her hands, and says, please God, give me peace tomorrow so that I can do my best, and then gets back into bed. And then she thinks, but I didn't say amen at the end of my prayer. So she gets out of bed, gets back down on her knees, closes her eyes, clasps her hand, and says, please, God, give me peace so that I can do my best tomorrow. Amen, amen. And when she opens her eyes, standing in front of her is her mother, finding out what on earth the ruckus is about, because this girl should be in bed, sleeping, before her test tomorrow. And the girl says, but I was worried that if I didn't do it right, God wouldn't listen to me. Legalism has been a problem since well before the time of Jesus. It is an excessive adherence to a law or formula 
without giving any thoughts to the reason behind that law and is a primary source of argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. The thinking is logical. If the law defines what is good, then rigid adherence to the law means uber good. The problem with this thinking is that it defines a system which encourages minimum behavior and is very easy um, to miss the intent behind it. So for example, what do we know about the Titanic? Well, it was the largest afloat ship afloat when it was made. It was one of three Olympic-class steamships, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. As a piece of irrelevant to the rest of the sermon trivia, there was a nurse named Violet Jessup on the uh, Titanic, and she was rescued when it hit an iceberg and sank. She was also on board the Olympic when it hit the HMS Hawk, and was rescued from the Britannic when that one hit a mine and sank during World War I. Which makes you wonder what would have happened if she'd met uh, Totsumo Yakamushi, the man who survived both, Hir uh, both the Hiroshima and the Nagasaki atomic bombs. Presumably they'd have formed some kind of superhero tag team for the unlucky. But don't get on a ship with her. Anyway, the Titanic sank on its maiden voyage to New York. And one thing that everyone knows about the Titanic is that it didn't have enough lifeboats. Except it did. Legally speaking, it had enough lifeboats for its class. Technically, they did nothing wrong in that area. That didn't stop 1,500 people and more dying when they couldn't get on one. Another example. At work, like most places, we have rules which govern our sick leave. Uh, we use, as part of it, something called the Bradford Factor, or the Bradford Formula, which is a tool used in human resource management, it gets more interesting, as a means of measuring worker absenteeism. The formula creates a score. There is a, um, as that score increases um, through absenteeism, um, there is a threshold which triggers questions from human resources. The theory is that short, frequent, unplanned absences are more disruptive than longer absences. So fewer, longer, continuous periods generate a, lo a lower score than several shorter periods. There is another rule which says that more than a single week requires a doctor's note. So if we apply some simple maths to this system, we can see that if you take two separate one-week absences, you do not need a doctor's note, you require it does not break your, uh, your Bradford scale, no action will ever be taken, and it still leaves a day or two free for, say, a real illness. <laughs> so that's two weeks bonus leave by manipulating the system. It doesn't trigger any alarms, but it very clearly violates the intent behind the ruling. These are examples of legalism, and we can see the same attempts over and over when people are questioning Jesus. So in Luke 10, chapter 20, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, using the message translation, then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what is written in God's law and how do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passions and your prayer and muscle and intelligence and that you love your neighbor as well you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do that and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he said, and how would you define neighbor? So Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Looking for a loophole. 
a way to prove righteousness or to duck responsibility. The question the man is asking is not, what must I do? But rather, what is the least I can get away with? Later, on one of many occasions when Jesus confronts the Pharisee, Luke 16, 15, Jesus spoke to them, you are masters at making yourselves look good in front of others, but God knows what's behind the appearance. And this is Jesus' accusation to those who practice legalism. He opposes it because it does not deal with, what, with the condition of our hearts before God. To put it another way, the intent of a law can be corrupted without actually breaking it. Do you think, just as a, an aside question, that Jesus taught in parables because they capture intent far better than strict laws? We know that God is beyond legalism, that he values what is in our hearts, not how we justify our selfish actions. We believe that God is not just power. We reach out to an intelligence when we cry for help, and he decides how to respond. We know that prayers are not magic. They work, but they're not magic. When we say the right words, we do not, we're not in a situation where if we say the right words, we get a predictable result. They are an appeal for intervention backed by faith that that intervention comes from one who has our best interests at heart. If it weren't so, we could, we could predict the results of prayer and prove the existence of God quite easily enough by working out the correct formula for praying for miracles. So, Paul's letter to the Galatians. The history on this one is slightly hazy as it is with most of the letters, but it was probably written in AD 48 while Paul was in Antioch in Syria. Paul preached in and set up the Galatian church about a year prior to this, and since then they have taken in some new teachers who advocate following the law of Moses as essential. This is boiled down to the question, should a Gentile convert be circumcised? with that ritual being the outward sign of sealing the covenant enshrined in the law of Moses between God and man. You're lucky at this point I was going to describe how that actually works with pictures. We're not doing that. <laughs> but this question is the hot topic of the day. Assuming the dates are correct, this is sent before... Uh, this letter is sent before the Council of Jerusalem at which this matter came to a head and the church elders actually answered it. Paul sees the Galatians as being led astray by their new teachers who are intimidating them into following their own agendas, which is mostly status within Jewish hierarchy for converting members to a, new, to a form of Judaism. Uh, and remember at this time, Christians identified as Jewish. He is of the opinion that circumcision and hence adherence to Jewish law is not the most important requirement and is potentially blocking people from understanding the message of the gospel. This echoes the words of Jesus in our reading from Matthew, damning the Pharisees for crushing those converting to Judaism with the weight of the law rather than helping them foster a relationship with God. And Paul is speaking with authority about a relationship from God here. Earlier in this letter, Paul references his conversion, where God reached out to him, a strictly law-abiding Jew at the time, 
and delivered a new message, the message of the gospel. God formed a relationship with Saul, as he was, despite his being held in bondage by the law. To understand his credibility, sorry, to underline his credibility, he tells them that his message has been verified with the disciples at a meeting in Jerusalem, and it is the same truth that they themselves are teaching. He then appeals to the Galatians, almost begs them to listen, by talking about his prior relationship with them, how he helped them and would have done anything for him. How he's the same person and he can't believe that he is suddenly their enemy when he writes to correct them. Having established that he is on their side, Paul then doesn't pull any punches. This is his, his most critical letter, which can be seen both from the words and the terminology that he uses to the way it is structured. At the beginning, there is no warm thanksgiving introduction, which there is in every other one of his letters, and is the standard for New Testament style um, letter writing. And this shows Paul's alarm. He sees the Galatians risking their souls, which is not some small matter. So aside from guarding those with the, uh, sorry, so aside, so aside from guarding against those with their own agenda, what is Paul afraid of? Put simply, Paul is afraid that the Galatians are viewing the law as superior to God. It is easier to see while this is a, why this is an appealing trap. It is much easier to understand life if we can point at a rule and say, I'm doing that right, or you're doing that wrong, than it is to attempt to make sense of the chaos we perceive around us. However, adherence to the law strikes at the heart of the gospel message. We are justified by faith, saved by belief in Jesus, not through our deeds, and this is what Paul fears that they will forget. While the law won't lead you astray, it stands between God and man. And as, and as Jesus highlighted over and over again while clashing with the Pharisees, it puts the focus in the wrong place. In many ways, he, and now Paul, are making accusations of idolatry, as the law takes the place of God himself, just as other, um, just as other things, both good and bad, can do. Now, we aren't in any danger of adopting hardline mosaic law, I hope. But there is a danger of getting wrapped up in the trappings of our community and service and forgetting God. A rock star worship pastor, a talented preacher, a focus, a focus on the beautiful building, a desire to increase the number of attendees, all are valued components of a church family. But all can be put in the center and distract from God. Consider the formal liturgy. It's an act of worship refined over many, many years to focus on what is important and to bring people to God, to God's presence for communion. It's a source of comfort for many. However, I grew up in a, very for, in a much more formal church than this one. I was in a robed choir, complete with a ruff, and eventually a surplus. I was in church every week. And every week we said the same thing for years and years. I can recite the formal liturgy better than many clergy. And I can do it by plugging my mouth directly into my memory and letting habit take over. And when I do it, it evokes a feeling of comfort and familiarity. But I would say that that feeling is linked to memories of my childhood and not because of any particular relationship with God. Think about your prayer habits. 
we are encouraged to have a developed prayer life. So maybe you feel that it's necessary to pray at 9 a.m. every single day, and that is good. But what happens on the day you can't do it? Do you feel guilty? Maybe you feel God isn't listening because you've not prayed correctly like the girl at the start of this sermon. Another example, I wear a cross. I wear it every single day. And it's enough of a habit for me that it feels weird if I go out without it. But it's very important to me that I don't start believing that God rides around in that cross. If I go out without it on, God isn't left at home. I lost it once. And that didn't mean to me that God was angry and had gone away from me. It's very easy to understand why we seek ritual, be it the binds of law or other traditions. There is comfort in the familiar. We are creatures of habit, but that habit can be a trap. The danger Paul is addressing is placing too much value on the habit and not the Lord above. He wants to ensure that the Galatians remain focused on the temple and not the gold, to paraphrase the reading from Matthew. And he wants them to think about the painter, not the painting. The underlying point here is the great importance of our relationship with the painter or God. The story of the gospel is one of God moving closer to us and inviting us into a relationship with him. Paul highlights this by talking about adoption. We start as slaves or as children, which he argues is much the same. We are bound by the law, which was given to educate and train us in our infancy, to guide us with simple instructions. However, we could never be justified by the law. So in time, we were brought into our inheritance. And this inheritance was promised to Abraham, a promise which, as we heard a few weeks ago, was not bound in the law of Moses, for obvious reasons. With the coming of Jesus, God set us free to experience our rightful heritage, to use the message translation. The rightful heritage is intimate relationship with God, not earned via the law, but given freely through our adoption as the children of God. By rushing back to the law, Paul sees the Galatians turning their backs on this inheritance and retreating from relationship with God, hence his fear for their souls. This is not in keeping with God's desires. Back in Hosea 6, 6, we learn in the, in the message translation, I'm after love that lasts, not mere religion. I want you to know God. I want you to know God, not to go to more prayer meetings. If we take the English standard version of the same reading, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Religion is all too much seen as a great list of don'ts and disaster to ye ifs. And indeed this letter is very much addressing a negative. However, buried beneath all this, there is great news for us here. While we may not struggle to divine God's sorry, while we may struggle to divine God's ruling, God's plan, and God's purpose, or have problems interpreting God's law or God's word, we are, we are infinitely blessed because this is a secondary concern. Some of you may remember a vicar called Simon Holland. He was a face around here some time ago. He once summed it up for me when in answer to one of my questions, he said, 
I think we are more worried about this kind of thing than God is. I encourage you to take that message with you today. God loves you. Through the saving power of Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. We are children of the Heavenly Father. Everything else is secondary. This is a great freedom, a release from the burden of law and the yoke of servitude. But it does come with a mandate. A relationship takes two to maintain. God is standing with open arms, but he won't force you into his embrace. So as Paul begged the Galatians, I beseech you, consider what stands between you and God, what might be hindering or blocking your relationship with him. Then work to remove it. Clear the way for your inheritance, for there is nothing more important. Father God, thank you that through your grace and mercy, we are adopted into your family and you want to know us personally. I pray that we will all grow as your children and come to know you more closely. Amen. <laughs>